I come bearing good news this morning. The good news is that in two more days it's over. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I don't know about you, but it's just getting a little old, a little, little bit old. And, you know, we ought to feel grateful because I'm told that in swing states, they get four times the political propaganda that we get here. I can't even imagine that. I mean, I would just go on a fast from television and radio for like six months. Uh, it's just... And, and, the, and this actually has something to do with what I'm going to talk about. This isn't just totally superfluous humor, but why not? Um, but, you know, the, the, the advertisements are so predictable. Um, I, you know, I don't know why we just don't... See, if, if I was running the country, which I have no aspirations to do, but if I was, you know, I, I'd pass a law or something that says, okay, here's the deal. Every candidate for every position gets to write out one paper statement. Uh, you know, and the higher up the office, the bigger the paper thing can be. For presidents, it can be up to 40 pages. And for people who can't read, we'll just send you a CD. You can put it on your television and watch this. And they put together all their ideas, and they contrast it with all the other ideas, and they mail it out to everybody. And then we read the, their positions, and then we come and vote. And we can save billions of dollars in all this propaganda. Why do we need all that? My gosh. Let's just send it out. That's never going to happen, so you don't, don't even waste the energy clapping for that one. But it's just, the propaganda is just over the top. You know, these commercials come on. They have the eerie music, that Halloween music, the Grim Reaper music, the evil music. This candidate, he wants to raise your taxes. He, he, he's anti-American. He, he wants to kill your family. He, he's a communist. He's the incarnation of Satan. Do you want to really vote for Satan? And then comes the happy music. But our candidate, our candidate loves America and loves your family and loves your children and will lower your taxes. And it's like, come on. You know, they're just moving us, jerking us, manipulating us around with their evil music and all their, their stuff. It's like, enough is enough. Enough, ah, get done with it. So I'm looking forward for two, two more days. It's over and no more of this propaganda stuff. But you know, all of this politicizing stuff, it's, you know, it's just the way the world works. But all of it presupposes, now think about this, in any kind of political squabble, it presupposes that me and my candidate and my party were smarter and we care more than you and your party and your candidate. All political differences are based on a claim to superiority. We're smarter and we care more than you. Uh, and then because it gets polarized and you're trying to get votes, you have to not just be smarter than the other person, but you have to depict them as an idiot. And you're not just, you don't just care more than the other person, they're actually immoral. You have to demonize them. And so we have this kind of polarization going on. But what's, what undergirds the whole process is this claim to superiority. And that's just the way the world works. There, there you go. But what I want us to notice, and we'll get into this a little bit in the message, is that the kingdom of God is based on moving in an opposite direction from that. The kingdom of God is based not on any claim to superiority, uh, not on on any kind of superior wisdom or superior ethics or, or anything of the sort. Rather, the kingdom of God is based on humility. And on the understanding that all we are, that has eternal worth, uh, it, it, we, we get as a gift from God. And it's a, it, it's, it's a mindset of, 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 of coming under people rather than trying to go over people. So the world will be what the world is, and I ask your opinion and feel free to give it. But always remember that the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God isn't the right version of being superior. The kingdom of God is about coming under 
being humble, and confessing your total dependency on God. And with that in mind, let's turn to the book of Luke. We're doing our fourth message in this series on the great reversal. And um, uh, here we're looking at the parable of the lost coin. So it's verses 8 through 10. And this message is brought to you by Rockstar Energy Drink, Party Like a Rockstar. Hey, when you're dealing with the flu, you need every bit of help you can get. Jesus says, or suppose. No, you remember he just told, oh, hey, by the way, uh, great message from Shauna last week. I so appreciate her vulnerability and sharing her testimony. Amen. What, what a gift and a blessing she is. She talked about the, the, the lost sheep. And now Jesus continues the same theme. He says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. And as Scott points out in the prayer journal that I hope you're all working through, um, that probably meant that this was her life savings. Um, So this is a very precious coin. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Every one of them gets a party. Father, just open our minds and hearts and ears to receive your word, to get a clear clear picture of how outrageously beautiful you are, and a clear picture of our worth before you, Lord. Collapse, maybe deceptive messages that have been installed in our brains that keep us from really entering into and benefiting from and being transformed by the true beauty of who you are and our worth uh, before you. And God, give me strength and clarity of thought uh, to deliver this word. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Three basic points out of this very basic message. Uh, the coin was lost, the woman looked for it, and when she found it, she threw a party. And we're just going to unpack each of those here a little bit. The first thing is that the coin was lost. Um, this is a theme that we find in the three teachings of, of Luke 15. Uh, the sheep was lost, and then it was found. The coin was lost, and then it was found. And the son, we'll see next week, was lost, and then it was found. There's this theme about the lost being found. And what's behind each of these parables is this, this uh, idea that the good news is, that, uh, is for the lost, those who know that they're lost. There's good news because God's looking for you. But with that is this bad news to those who don't think they're lost. Because the only kind of sheep that God goes looking for are the lost kind, and the only kind of coins that he looks for are the lost kind. And he's the one who gets the party, we'll see next week, is the prodigal son. The only kind of coins that God's looking for are the lost kind. So the question is, do you know that you're lost? It's possible to know, it's possible to think that you're found when in fact you're lost. It's possible to think that you're absolutely in the right place when actually you're in the absolute wrong place. Have you ever been driving somewhere and you were very sure, men, listen up, that you were going the right way and it turned out you were going the exact wrong way? That you were lost but you didn't have a clue that you were lost, which meant that you were super lost. There's lost and super lost. Super lost is when you don't even know that you're lost. A couple of years ago, I was on this trip down to Chicago, and, and um, I had to deliver this paper at this theology conference. And um, 
I, I, it was a six-hour drive, and I gave myself two hours more in case something went wrong. So I'm driving out of Chicago, having a good old time. Radio's blasting. I'm t- tapping with, uh, um, with my drumstick on my rearview mirror, as I always do. I can't, drum, I, can't, I can't drive without drumming. And so I'm drumming along, having a good old time. I stop at a rest stop, take care of business, go back into my car, and continue driving. About an hour and a half later, I see a sign that says, St. Paul, 60 miles. Now, you so don't want to believe that that's true. So your brain tries to trick yourself. Now, that can't be, that can't be true. And I honestly thought someone must have put a sign up in the wrong place. Because surely I'm not going the wrong direction. It's the sign's fault. Or maybe there's a St. Paul before Chicago that I didn't know about. And I, something, I can't possibly be going the wrong direction. Even I'm not that dumb. It turns out I am. I kept on driving, insisting that, that this, that this, and I thought, when I got out of the car, which way did I go? And I was sure, I was absolutely certain, with my music playing and my drumming going on, I was certain, carefree certain, that I was going the right direction. Until then, finally, I see a sign that says, in about another 20 miles, is Hudson, Wisconsin. And now I knew that, in fact, I had been going the exact wrong direction for the last two hours. Now I've got to turn around. It'll take me another two hours just to get back to where I was at the rest stop, which means I've lost a total of four hours, and I'm never going to make that theology conference on time. It's possible to be going in the exact wrong con- uh, direction, totally confident you're going in the right direction, but, in fact, you're lost. These parables are a way of trying to get us to wake up, especially get those who are secure that they're not lost, to wake up to the reality that they are, apart from God, they are lost. And the ones who Jesus really has in mind are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious leaders. These folks were totally sure that they were perfectly okay with God. And they based that assurance and that confidence on external stuff. Like, we keep the rules when other people don't. We believe the right things when other people don't. We got the right religion when other, people's don't, when other people don't. And on that basis, they were very confident, absolutely sure that they were right in the right place. Which is why they had no need for a Savior like Jesus. Which is why they ended up crucifying Jesus. That's why Jesus said that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going into heaven before the Pharisees. Matthew 21, incredible. Because see, the the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they at least have the advantage of knowing that they're lost. The lost coins have the advantage. Really, we're all lost. It's just that some people have the disadvantage of not knowing that. And so the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they don't have the kind of external props to give them the confidence that they're okay with God. They know that that, that, that they're losers, which makes them open to receiving what God wants to give them for free. The only kind of coins that God looks for are the lost kind. So to enter into the kingdom, you've got to be willing to acknowledge that you're lost. To enter the kingdom, you have to relinquish all trust in external props. You have to lose your confidence in the externals of what you believe, being right on all your beliefs, being right on all your behavior. You have to lose all that impulse to be superior and to judge others and to contrast yourself with others. You have to lose all the stuff that the Pharisees were relying on to enter into the kingdom. We must become humble. We have to put ourselves in the position of the prostitutes and the tax collectors. We have to put ourselves in the position, as Paul says, of confessing that we are the worst of sinners. To enter into the kingdom, we have to lose all claims to superiority. To enter into the kingdom, we have to relinquish all claims to have to be in a position to judge anybody. 
To enter into the kingdom, you've got to acknowledge that apart from God's grace, you are a lost sinner in no position to look down on anybody. To enter into the kingdom is to confess that you're lost and your only hope is the character and the grace and the love of the God who's looking for you. It's all based on that. To enter the kingdom is to put all your hope and trust, not in anything that you have inside of you, not in the rightness of your beliefs or the goodness of your behavior or how you contrast with others, but to put all your hope in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul, Paul in Philippians 3, I, I was at uh, Mars Hill last week, Rob Bell's church, and I preached this message. And I'm going to try not to repeat the whole message, but it was pretty good. Uh, but but it, Paul in Philippians 3 says, um, he says, you know, there's, there's a bunch of people bragging about their righteousness. Uh, you know, that they're, you know, they've got these merit badges and the things, the external props that make them secure before God. And Paul says, you know what, you boast in the flesh. You're boasting in the flesh. That's just the carnal way I get in life. Uh, you contrast yourself with others. And then, then Paul says, you know, I could do that if I wanted to. Philippians chapter 3. He says, I, if you want to play the religious boast game, I, I, I'm Jewish. I was circumcised on the eighth, eighth day. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. You know, I, I was a Pharisee. I kept the law blamelessly. I was zealous for righteousness. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You want to play the brag boast game? I can do that. In religious circles, I can probably beat you all at the religious boast game, but I'm not going to do that. In fact, he says, I consider all of that stuff, all the gains, all the way that we try to get merit and security for ourselves to convince ourselves that we're not lost. He says, I consider all of that to be scubalon. And the word scubalon is the Greek word for crap. <laughs> the nice translation is refuse or rubbish uh, or dung, as the King James Version has it. But it's a pejorative word. It means excrement. Uh, you know, it's just, it's a bunch of crap. Getting life from your religion is a bunch of crap. Holding yourself up, thinking that you're right before God because you are smarter than others because you believe the right things, that's a bunch of crap. Uh, thinking that, that you're, you're right before God because you don't do the behaviors that somebody else does, that's a bunch of crap. It's just a bunch of dung. It's, it's just a load of rubbish. And then Paul says, I consider all to be scubalong, all to be excrement. Because the only thing that matters, he says, is to be found, found, lost coin kind of found, lost sheep kind of found, to be found in Christ. Having a righteousness that doesn't come of my own, but a righteousness that he gives me for free. So folks, standard of the kingdom is to assume a position of humility. And uh, understand that you're in no position to look down on anyone, that you are the worst of sinners. And our only hope is found in the one who's looking for us. And his name is Jesus Christ. And all of our righteousness and all of our security and all of our standing before God comes from him and from him alone. Point number one, the coin was lost. Point number two. God searches for the coin. The lady, uh, when she realized that her coin was, was gone, so she got, a, she got a light, a lamp, and she got a broom, and she started sweeping that house. Excuse me for a second here. Ah. Ah. You know, I won't do it up here, but uh, I found really helpful, if, if, for those of you who are getting plugged up and fluish, you got this, I forget what it's called, but it's this like teacup thing, and it's the grossest thing in the world, but it feels really good. When you put it in your nose, you go like this, and it drains out the other nostril, you put some salt in it, burns like heck, but man, does it clear you out. I just thought I'd share that with you for free. <laughs> Maybe next sermon I should give you an illustration, wouldn't that be cool? Excuse me for a second while I just drain this baby here. All right. That was, that was the cough medicine talking now. Okay, let's go back on track. 
So the lady gets her lamp and she gets her broom and she sweeps the whole, the whole house. She's looking for this lost coin. There's a sense of urgency, maybe even desperation in the passage. She earnestly is going to, she's going to look in every nook and cranny until she finds this lost coin. And of course, the message is that that is what God is like. God is the one who's urgently, even desperately looking for the lost coin. The lost coin are you and I who know that we're lost. Now, it's a beautiful picture of God. A God as a desperate searcher, looking for that which is lost. But I don't know how much, how many people really believe that, really believe that. It goes against most people's conception of God, I think, to think that he's actually out there pursuing us. Most people, I think, have, and we're all inclined to have this, this conception of God is sort of out there, the old man in the sky, kind of looking down on us. He's in the bliss of heaven, you know, and, and, and if anything, he's waiting for us to pursue him. He's up there saying, come on, you losers, get with the program, and, and we have to kind of chase after him. But the idea that God is, 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 is passionately and, and even desperately pursuing us out of love, searching for us out of love, I think is a pretty radical conception that most people don't have. We're in some ways more careful with, more used to this sort of distant God who is in the bliss of heaven, doesn't get wrapped up in the messiness of our life. Now, part of the problem, and here I'm going to do a little bit of theologizing, okay? So put on your thinking caps. At this church, we get the theological and philosophical once in a while. So the next five minutes are theology time. Ready? Get set. Go. Part of the problem goes back to church history because the early church, and for various reasons, uh, developed this model of God. And this model of God, uh, they, they had all these attributes they gave God in, in defining God. And um, they really created this distant, detached, unaffected God. Uh, two of the attributes that, that the tradition has always given God, and these are still defended by a lot of conservative theologians, is that God is immutable and impassable. Immutable means he's above all change. He's so great he never changes in any respect. Not just in his character, which everyone grants, but even his experience doesn't change. Because all change is bad. And he's impassable, which means he's above pathos, uh, which is the word for passion, emotion, or suffering. God is so great, never experiences any change in emotion. God is so great, they said he never is suffers, there's never any pain. So you create this picture of God as sort of this immovable object in the sky, in the transcendent ethereal realm, where he's not affected by the vicissitudes of change in this world. He's not impacted by the stuff of this world. You know, he's, he's forever the same. He lives in this cosmic, eternal, eternally the same now. His view of the world is, it never changes. It's eternally the same. Now, that view, I submit to you, doesn't come out of the Bible. It comes out of Plato. I'm, I'm not working, I've been working on a book for about nine years that's going to prove this, but I, I'm not going to give you the whole nine, nine years worth of research right now. But I'll just show, say this. If you go back to Plato, you'll find this poor example of reasoning. And I love a lot of Plato, but I don't love this part of Plato. Plato, in the Timaeus and in the Republic, two works that he, famous works that he wrote, he says this. Change, all change is either for the better or for the worse. You don't change unless you're trying to improve or unless you're degrading, unless you're getting worse. But a perfect being like a God can't be improved. Otherwise, it wouldn't be perfect. And a perfect being like a God also couldn't be made worse. Otherwise, it would be perfect. So a perfect being like a God can never change. Never. Not in any respect. Not just in character, but in terms of experience. 
And the early church, as it was wrestling with scripture and stuff, began to appropriate, began to adopt that model of God, began to speak that language. And by the time we get to St. Augustine, it's canonized. And so the whole church tradition has this platonic God, immutable and impassable. Now, I submit to you that that is both bad philosophy and bad theology. Really, 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 really bad. Nasty. Because look at, let's do the philosophy first. Why think that all change is for the better or for the worse? And if you're talking about a personal being, why especially think that all change has to be for the better or for the worse? Can't some change just be there to express who you are? Think about it like this. If I'm a perfect human being, which is a stretch, I know, but if I was a perfect human being, and but therefore I had a perfect loving character. If I'm walking along the street and I'm in a good mood singing zippity doo da, you know, zippity day, I just did that little nose wash, I got my, I'm breathing really good, so I'm in a really good mood. And then I come, I'm, you know, in a really good mood, and I come upon a lady who's, who's, who's just, you know, really bent out of shape because, because uh, she just lost her child. I mean, she, uh, she's just, and it's a catastrophe. She's wailing. Now, if I continue in my immutable, impassable good mood, you wouldn't think I was a perfect, loving human being, would you? I'm above change. I don't change for that. No, if, if, I, am a, if I really have an unchanging character of perfect love, I, for that very reason, will change. What, what she's going through, it will impact me. I'll be affected by her. I'll empathize with her. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll enter in precisely because I was a perfect personal being, I would change and adapt for her. That's not making me better. That's not making me worse. It's just expressing who I am. So also, you know, you can have perfect mathematical principles that are impassable and immutable for sure. But to have a perfect personal being means, if, if it means anything, it means that God would be the most adapting, the most flexible, the most give and take. Which, and now we come to the theology part, is exactly what you find in the Bible. The God of the Bible is anything but this God who's up there in the sky and above the changes of, of the world and above suffering and above emotion and above passion. The God of the Bible, in contrast to the God of Plato and a lot of other Greeks, this God is a God who's got a lot of emotion. Read the Bible. There's a lot of give and take. Read the Bible. He, he's always interacting with us. What we do impacts him. What, what, what he does impacts us. There's this relationship. He's a personal God, not a metaphysical principle. And this is a God in the Bible who pursues us, who chases us. And the whole Bible story really is, is about God pursuing human beings. When we are rebelling, when we don't want anything to do with him, when we're stuck in our sin, God pursues us with passion, with love. Sometimes with rage, he pursues us. He's constantly adapting himself, even lowering the bar to try to get us on board with his program because he knows that our program leads to destruction, but his program leads to life. A God who passionately pursues us through history. You see this most beautifully in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. Where, where God tells Hosea, this prophet, this holy man, this righteous guy, he says, I want you to go out into the red light district and marry a prostitute. God's a radical God. Go out there and marry a prostitute. It's going to be scandalous, but don't, you'll deal with that. Go and marry a prostitute. And the prostitute's name is Gomar. I don't know what's worse, being a woman who's a prostitute or a woman whose name is Gomar. But a prostitute named Gomar. And so they get married, this righteous man and this prostitute. And they have a couple kids, you know. And, and, but then at some point, for whatever reasons, she goes back into her prostituting behavior. 
And then God says to Hosea, okay, here's the deal. I want you, I want you to illustrate to Israel my heart and my character, what I feel like, by going throughout all the towns of Israel and you go looking for her, go searching for her. You, you holler out her name as you're walking down the streets. You go knocking on doors. Go find your prostituting wife. And then tell the people of Israel that is exactly how Yahweh feels. And so Hosea's got to go down in the red light district of town. They had him back in those days too. And he's got to go knocking on the doors of the Johns and saying, hey, sir, you know, are you sleeping with Gomar, my wife? Can I have her back, please? And he goes throughout the town saying, Gomar, my, my prostitute wife, will you come back to me? I love you. I want to have you back. And he goes all over the place hollering this, looking for her, searching for her. And what God is saying in all of this is this is, this is the position I'm in. I, I, I pursue you. I love you. I look for you. I pour blessings on you, but you keep prostituting yourself. By chasing after false gods, prostituting yourself, by getting life from, from, from other things other than me, prostituting yourself, by chasing after all the ways that I tell you not to, you won't come unto me. My heart is breaking. I'm a desperate lover searching for a bride. The bride resists him. The God of the Bible is a God who searches, passionately searches, radically searches. A God who is, he's so great, he puts himself in a position of desperate love. And nowhere do you see this, of course, more clearly than in the person of Jesus Christ. Where God, in order to rescue a bride, becomes a human being and takes upon himself the sin of the world and dies a hellish death. This is a God of desperate love. Enter into, for a moment, what, what God, the perfect parent, the perfect lover, must feel like when his children are lost. Let's dare to enter into that. Well, ask yourself the question, how does an imperfect parent feel when their child is lost? Uh, when, when my daughter was three years old, uh, Alicia, uh, she and Shelly went shopping at Penny's. And um, uh, at one point, you know, Shelly's shopping and Alicia, the three-year-old, is right next to her. But at one point, Shelly looks back and, and Alicia is gone. And immediately her heart starts racing. So she runs down the aisle, looks up and down. She's not there. Runs down the next aisle. She's not there. Her heart's racing faster and faster. She's starting to sweat. She's starting to go into panic mode. She runs over the whole store and can't find Alicia. She goes to the management. And now she's in this fit of desperate rage. You know, my daughter is missing. So, you know, Help me find my daughter. So they send out people all over the place. And within a few seconds, they find Alicia just outside the door of Penny's, sitting on one of those you know, merry-go-round horses deals that they have there. What do they call them? Carousels? A little little carousel. Now, the whole episode, I think, lasted about two minutes, but for Shelley, it was like two eternities. To to seriously consider the possibility that your child's been abducted is, I think, the single most hellish, nightmarish, diabolical thought you can have. And there's this rage and this desperation, I've got to find my daughter. Now, if that is what... In fact, Shelly's still traumatized by this. I mean, it had such an impact on her. Just this week, one night, she had a nightmare that Alicia was kidnapped. This is 25 years later. That's how it impacted her, the thought that my daughter might go missing. Well, Shelly, well, she's close to perfect. She's not the perfect parent, doesn't love quite like God loves. And yet, she experienced this depth of desperation when her child went missing. What is God's heart? 
when his children go missing. Yes, it was our fault, the same way that it was Alicia's fault for walking out the door and she was supposed to stay by, by Shelly's side. But it, it was our fault. We went into rebellion, but it's still the case that we've been abducted. We've been kidnapped by the principalities and powers. This earth has come under siege. We've been made slaves to powers that we were never to be serving. Uh, we lost our, we, we surrendered our own lordship over this earth. And, and, and now we're in bondage. We are exiled from God. What is God's heart like? The God who in Isaiah 49 says, I'm the mother who nursed you at my breast. I've engraved you in the palm of my hands. I can never forget you. You got to know that God, God has this passionate, yes, even desperate, because he's so great and so almighty, he puts himself in a position where his heart can break. And with a desperate love of a mother looking for a child, he's looking for you. He's looking for you. Not just humanity in general, but you in particular. And he has gone and will go to any extreme imaginable in order to to find you and to enter into a relationship with you. What does it mean that God became a human being if it doesn't mean that God will do anything to rescue you? What does it mean that God would die a, a hellish death on the cross if it doesn't mean that God is a desperate lover searching for you? What does it mean that God took upon himself what was opposite him, sin, the all-holy God becoming sin and diving into the depths of our hell if it doesn't mean that God is a desperate lover God who's searching for you, his child? God is the perfect parent who with, desperate, with, with a desperate heart wants to rescue you from destruction, from the bondage to Satan, and the bondage to the powers, and the bondage to sin. And when he finds you, when he finds you, I mean, g- g- get a picture of, of, of a desperate mother, your God, chasing you. That really is how beautiful God is. That really is how, in fact, the words aren't even coming close, but that is God's heart towards every human being, and towards you in particular. And when he finds you, enter into the relief. And he throws a party. He throws a party. Now, to be found by him, what it means is that he's finally managed to get you to turn your heart around. He doesn't coerce you, but he's always influencing, trying to get us to surrender, to stop relying on our own external props, uh, to surrender our lives to him, to start walking his way rather than our own way, to start being transformed. All that is involved in the biblical concept of being found, in the biblical concept of salvation. It's not just professing a magical prayer, but it's actually surrendering your life to him. You are now being found by him. And when you're found, the Bible says that all the angels in heaven rejoice. There is a party, which is our third point. There's a party that's thrown for you. The woman, when she finds the coin, calls her neighbors and they all come over and throw a party. When the shepherd finds the sheep, he calls for a party. Next week, we'll see that when the son returns home, there's a party. There is... We need to get this, not just as a group, but individually. There is a party thrown for you. When your heart genuinely turns, you begin to surrender, you begin to change as he works in your life, there is a party thrown for you. The desperate mother of perfect love is now celebrating that that which was lost is now being found. There's something about having a party thrown for you. That communicates your worth and lovability like nothing else. You are worth celebrating. If you've ever had a party thrown for you, and I hope you have, uh, it communicates you are worth celebrating. We celebrate you. Last year, 
Shelly, my wonderful wife, threw a 50th year birthday party for me. It was a surprise party. She rented out a hall and then rented out a band and had some friends over and threw this party. And I walked in, I was just blown away. I was, at, I, I don't know if I've ever felt more loved in my life. Like, she would do that for me. You know, this big, big party. It was incredible. It was just, you know, I, I just felt so loved. And we all need to see that a party is thrown for us. That needs to be a concrete reality because when, 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 when we can see the angels in heaven giving each other high fives over us, a party just for us, each coin gets the party, each sheep gets the party. It's not just for humanity in general, it's for you. Your name is on the invitation ticket, if you will. And when we can see that it becomes real to us, that begins to communicate to us something about a fullness of life and a fullness of worth. And, and, and to live in the kingdom is to live out of this fullness that you're, the issue of your worth and value has been settled. And now you live to express it rather than trying to get it, as the world does. Do you know that a party is thrown for you? It might look something like this. There's a young lady that I uh, knew when I was a full-time teacher at Bethel. Uh, I'll call her Susie. And Susie was a very bright student. But she always struggled with anxiety and always struggled with depression and always struggled with really believing God was good. Just a a real stronghold in her life. Now when you get to know her, you understand why. Because she was raised with an alcoholic father who would come home sometimes and and just beat her because he was mad at the world. Uh, Her her mom was this kind of codependent lady who never really intervened. Uh, And so it was basically the the father that, that ran the show. He'd come home drunk sometimes and beat her. And so Susie would sometimes hide when she heard him come home late. Uh, he'd be loud, and she could tell when he had been drunk, so she would hide so as to escape the beating. And sometimes the father would search the house, calling out her name, combined with a lot of vulgarity, looking for her, and when he would find her, he would beat her. And so there was a time where we got together and prayed for her. A few of us who knew her, and, and we just prayed that God would reveal his true loving nature to her and would reveal to her something of, of her inestimable, unsurpassable worth and break through some of the strongholds that were in her mind that were anchored there by her really dysfunctional, sick, and abusive father. And so we were praying, and I, I, I encouraged her to let the Lord just kind of show her in her imagination, in her spirit, the truth. And to talk to us as we were praying. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And um, so at one point she says, she said that she saw herself in this closet. It was a closet she used to hide in sometimes just beneath the bathroom sink. Because it was very small and he wouldn't think she could fit in there, but she could. And so he often, he, he wouldn't think of looking there. So she was crunched up in a little ball in this closet underneath the sink. And in this vision she's having, she hears her father raging throughout the house, hears her father calling out her name, mixed with a lot of vulgarities, madder than a hornet, threatening to beat her when he finds her, and he's going up and down the house, calling her, looking in various places, trying to find her, and she's scared, stiff, shaking, as she's in this little closet under the sink. And so we were praying, God, show her what is true, revealed to her, that, that was her experience, and it communicated a lie about her, and a lie about you, Lord, reveal the truth. And as we're praying at one point, all of a sudden the, the voice of the father, the angry, abusive father begins to fade away. And then she hears another voice calling out her name. And she's talking to us as we're praying for her. She hears another voice. 
And she knows it's the voice of Jesus. This voice isn't angry. This voice isn't going to beat her. This voice is a soft, loving, tender voice. But there's an earnestness in his voice as he's calling off her, Susie, where are you? Walking throughout the house, Susie, where are you? I'm looking for you. Are you playing hide and go seek with me? He said that at one point. I, I want to find you. I, 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 you know, I, I have something I want to show you. And so he's, she can hear him as she's in this closet walking throughout the house calling for, for her. At one point, but she's too afraid to come out. At one point, she hears a knock on the closet door. And he says, Susie, are you in there? And finally, she gets up the courage to say, yeah, I'm in here. And Jesus, goes, Jesus says, it's safe to come out. It's me. It's Jesus. I'm not at all like your dad. I would never hit you. I would never abuse you. I simply want to love you. I want to hold you. It's safe to come out. You can trust me. Susie is still kind of afraid. She's still hiding in there. At one point, Jesus cracks the door open. And I just love the way the Lord works. He's so beautiful when he does this, the way he communicates. It's not coercive. He's gentle. He cracks the door a little bit. And she can see his eyes. His eyes are very tender and loving. And, and he says, Susie, it's, it's okay. I, I, I made you and I died for you and, and I love you and, and I could heal you. And he extends his hand inside the closet. And then she finally grabs his hand and she comes out from under the closet. She gives him a bear hug as he gives her a bear hug and they just sort of are there for a moment. And then at one point, uh, Jesus says, look, look. And Susie, who's been a little girl on the, on the lap of Jesus, turns around and looks over her shoulder. And now she's in this big ballroom, giant ballroom, and it's packed with people. Or these angelic kind of beings. She just knows that they're angels. And as soon as she turns around and looks, they all, they all go, surprise! <laughs> and they all got party hats and they're blowing those little trailer things wherever they are. And, and there's this huge party for her and there's this big banner that says celebrating Susie you see the message she got growing up wasn't at all that but that is the true that that's the truth Susie is celebrated by all the angels in heaven when she surrenders her life to Jesus so the question I want to end with is this do you know that you're lost without him Do you really know that you're lost? Will you confess that and humble yourself and let go of all claims of superiority and external props? They're worthless. They're scubalon. The only thing that matters is Christ. And if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, really surrendered your life to Christ and put all your hope in him, do that right now. I'm going to lead us in a little prayer. Just just as I'm praying, you just surrender your life. And then if you have done that, can you lock in concretely the picture of God passionately searching for you? He so desperately wants to have this relationship with you and share this love with you. And then can you see, despite problems in your life, despite imperfections, despite ongoing struggles, can you see the party that God throws for you? Right now, I'm just going to pray. Close your eyes if you want and ask the Holy Spirit to show you truth. Holy Spirit, Will you reveal to us what we need to see? Show us the picture of the true God who, like a desperate mother, searches for her child. Help us to see that that's how you pursue us, Lord. I pray for everybody who maybe has not yet surrendered to you. Lord, help them to surrender, to come out of the closet, to grab your hand, and to be held by you. And then, Lord, I pray you'd show us the party that is thrown for us. We once were lost, but now we're found. 
we're blind, but now we're seeing. And now we see. And now, Lord, over us, you throw a party. God, and I pray that that would just communicate. Just see, 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 see the party. See the party. I pray, God, that that would communicate the unsurpassable worth and love that you have for us. Do it, Lord. Seal it in. And when we walk out of here, Lord God, we know that that doesn't change with the struggles of life. That that is who we really are because that is who you really are. And that is all that matters. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask the prayer team to come forward here. If you'd like to stay and pray for any need whatsoever, I encourage you to do that. Come up and these folks would love to pray with you. If you surrendered your life to Jesus this morning for the first time, come forward. These folks would love to talk with you about that. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.